0: and accelerate your success. Hi, I'm Nikki Barua, your
1: host for today's episode. We've all experienced what it's like to be led by leaders that are great and some that are not so great. Do you want to master leadership skills and be the kind of leader you'd love to follow? Well, today we're speaking with executive leadership coach, Robin Elledge, who provides perspective on the importance of self-development and learning to lead yourself before leading others. Robin leads Janice Coaching and Consulting, a firm that provides executive coaching and HR consulting services. Robin has held high-profile, C-level roles at public corporations, as well as fast-growing entrepreneurial firms. Her varied experiences have given her a unique perspective on leadership, growth, and success. In this episode, Robin discusses what it takes to build high-performing teams and how to navigate through uncertain times. Robin also reveals the keys to success, emotional intelligence, insatiable curiosity, deep love of learning, willingness to take risks, and the ability to adapt to change. Visit imbeyondbarriers.com where you will find show notes and links to all the resources referenced in this episode, including the best way to get in touch with Robin. Welcome, Robin. Thank you so much for joining the Beyond Bearers podcast. We're so excited to share your insights. I know our listeners especially are going to be very keen to hear about your experience because you've been at public companies, you've been at entrepreneurial ventures and academia, as well as your own coaching business. So I can't wait to share with everyone all of your insights today. Oh, Nikki, thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. So let's dive right in. Tell us about your journey and what you've learned through all of your experiences. Well, you know, I suppose one can
2: start anywhere when you talk about a journey. But I, you know, when I looked for the through line, the sort of the thread that runs through um, everything um, in my life, professional and personal um, life so far it really is a journey of curiosity that's kind of my foundation where I start from Mm. Um, you know learning exploring imagining thinking about what if that's really been the through line and uh, in fact I had a boss one time who told me I was like a shark that um, you know, because sharks have to keep moving; they they never stop. They have to keep moving through the water, or they die. And that's what he said: "You are someone who needs to keep moving, or you die." And I guess that's that's it. There you go.
1: A shark in a suit.
2: Yeah, well, sort of, but not the negative connotation. That sounds so negative. But you know, the keeping moving, the movement, the, the forward momentum, move, yeah. the yeah. perseverance—that that's something that resonates with me.
1: So, tell us about some of you've had a lot of career transitions tell us about some of the roles you've held and what allowed you to go from one environment and one industry to an entirely different one
2: well in some respects I think um, I was fortunate in picking a career that you can transition from one industry to another fairly easily um, because it's less industry specific Um, and that's my most of my professional career has been spent in human resources in one capacity or another. Um, And you can, I've actually worked in retail and hospitality and financial services and manufacturing. And I'm sure I'm leaving some things out, but um, so you can because the the skill set in human resources transitions very nicely from one industry to another. But I think another piece of that is that story of curiosity. I didn't want to be tied down to sort of one way of looking at the world, and and I really wanted to explore different ideas. For example, I've not um, just been in human resources, I've also run a business line. I've had P&L responsibilities, and I started a product line to do that, Um, and it was wildly successful and tremendous fun, but I realized I missed the people side. And at one point, uh, around the the recession, I decided, well, you know, what box haven't I checked yet? And what do I want to learn about? And, and entrepreneurship was one of those. And so I, um, that's what sent me in the direction of working for a, a small, fairly small um, startup company. It was it was beyond startup, I suppose, by the time I started working for them. But we went through three leverage buyouts and grew. By leaps and bounds, and and uh, got sold to a publicly traded company, and decided, been there, done that. <laughs> that's that's when I went off and did my own thing, and decided that, that when I left, I wanted. I had this vision of this three-legged stool, right? I wanted my uh, my coaching and consulting business uh, was one leg. I wanted to do teaching, which was another leg, and then the third leg was nonprofit work. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of been the foundation that I. I've done my own independent thing around and uh, and it's been super rewarding. The whole journey has been so much fun. So,
1: That's fantastic. Well, one of the things that you've um, been part of probably multiple roles that you've held is witnessing and actually driving rapid growth of those organizations as well. Give us a little bit of a behind the scenes view into what it really takes for Leaders to drive that kind of rapid growth, to build healthy, robust cultures, to um, be successful throughout that process.
2: Sure. Um, well, I can. I think the number one thing to say is they're not doing it by themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it's a team effort, particularly now in today's. In today's world, because change is happening so much more rapidly, information is is coming to our attention so much more rapidly. There's no entrepreneur, no matter how how smart, how visionary, um, that can't do it without a, a really strong team. So, it's really funny or, or interesting to me, I shouldn't say funny, but very interesting because when I was in my 20s, I actually wrote two books on team building um, with a co-author mm-hmm. and um, teams were really big then. That was It was like we hit um, sort of the, the environment when people were really starting to talk about teams and so, you know, that's one of the reasons the publishers were interested um, in those books and then it kind of fell by the wayside, not that teams went away necessarily, but leadership... Studies leadership um, thought really started moving much more towards the individual leader and what he or she could do in that respect, you know, servant leadership, charismatic leadership, there's a lot of different um, areas of focus that, that has happened over the years. But now, we're seeing much more of a focus on teams again. In fact, you had mentioned at the start of the podcast that I do executive coaching and team coaching is really big in that industry. It's like, it's come all the way full circle around. um, And I think a lot of that is because of the nature of organizations and the challenges that we're facing today. And uh, so I would say for sure, from a growth standpoint, it's getting people who are, Really good at things that you're not good at, um, and the realization that uh, the sort of the vulnerability mindset, if you will, um, being able to feel uncertain, feel okay about being uncertain in that moment, so that you can, uh, you know, let the teams do their work. In fact, I tend to think of leaders today more in the in the role of being orchestra masters, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, so you've got your string section and your woodwind section and, and yeah, you've got, uh, you know, some notes in front of you, but how those notes are played and when they're played and the timing and, and maybe going into an improvisation sort of mode at that point in time and how you practice and how you rehearse and who you call upon. Those are the, the key characteristics that I think leaders are really called upon to, to do nowadays.
1: That's a beautiful way of putting it. Um, I'm curious, since you also get to observe leaders in uh, a lot of different environments and roles, what um, are there certain myths or certain truths um, that you could share that um, a lot of leaders demonstrate or perhaps people think that they have that's frankly not true?
2: Um. First of all, I think there's, you know this, Nikki, um, we've had this conversation before, there's more than one way to be a successful leader. Mm -hmm. So there is no template, there is no magic wand, there is no, you know, end all be all assessment tool that you can take to, to point out what's working and what's not working. Um, at number one. And number two, so you've been successful in one environment that does not guarantee success in another because the the needs and the requirements, for example, you asked about culture earlier, you know, some companies given their, their industry, given the business environment around them, really um, it, 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 the type of culture necessary to be successful is market-driven, let's say, um, you know, sales-oriented, very heavy focus on that whereas another organization it what's really required is hierarchy structure Mm. and processes and and rules and as much as, as much of a bad rap as hierarchy gets there are places for it and there are industries for it that that is the right approach. And then there are others where you want more innovation and ad adhocracy. And then there's others that you want more of a clan or team feeling, again, depending. And so what it takes to be a successful leader in one is not the same as, as in another. But I do think there are, you know, back to your question again, I do think there are some universal things that but I've seen in leaders that have caused them difficulty, let's say, I mean, you know, to just to, to go at it from that angle. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, um, one of the ones that I see a lot, and, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, is pursuit of perfection. Mm. Um, and, you know, not being willing to let go of something until it's quote unquote perfect. Um, and I do think that that is something that, that can really uh, trip a leader up um, in a variety of different circumstances. Um, I remember watching a TED Talk, and I'm going to get his name wrong, but he was, um, he's a researcher, um, Michigan and Galway, I believe was his name. He was mm-hmm. talking about how he had discovered a test for anemia. He said, people were dying unnecessarily, and I saw this need. So you know what? I did it. I made it, and it didn't work. Mm. So I made it 32 more times, and then it worked. So perfection, you know, isn't a goal. It's, you know, it's all about a process of moving in the direction, um, you know, that, that that you're headed in.
1: And do you feel, what are some of the gender differences you've observed in that, in terms of leadership traits or certain... Um, obstacles perhaps that get in the way?
2: Oh, it's funny that you asked that because um, there's a lot of discussion around pursuit of perfection being much more of a female um, characteristic, at least in literature. I, I will tell you one thing that I do think, and it's an aspect of this, by the way, aspect of pursuit of perfection that I have seen more women than men generate. Mm-hmm. And that's when you do make a mistake, how do you handle it? Ah, and uh, women—at least I, I'm not speaking for all women, by the way. Um, please understand, but at least the ones that I um, personally have talked to a coach with—they're they're less likely to be able to let it go easily. Mm. Um, and in fact, it's that actual um, characteristic was was talked about in a book called The Confidence Code. I don't know if you're (laughs) familiar with that book. Okay. So there's a story in that book, um, which if you've read that book, you'll this will you'll remember this and it had to do with basketball and they were interviewing a guy who had been a basketball coach for both men and women and he was asked what's the difference in coaching men and women he said well the men you know even you know MBA caliber men they'll make a mistake they'll watch the tape they'll talk about it they'll learn from it and then it's gone they'll like they've, they've gotten their learning out of it and they let it go whereas women Two weeks later, a month later, they're still playing that mistake over in their head, and they're still they're sort of overthinking that um, mistake and not letting it go. So i I've, I've certainly not only seen it, but I've experienced it. Um, sometimes I wake up at four o'clock in the morning thinking about you know something that I wish I had done differently. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting view of perfection isn't just aiming for perfection, but the failure then translates into an obsession with not being able to let go of what was considered imperfect.
2: Right, right. Mm -hmm. But I love like there's this quote, Charles Mingus, he's a jazz musician, and he had this quote that if you make a mistake you might just want to play that, you know, (laughs) lead into it, just go with it. Yeah, just lean into
1: it. (laughs) That's great. You've got so many big things in your career. Your early start as a pioneer then continued and some of the other game-changing things you've done and uh, also switching industries all the way from fast retail, uh, fashion and um, the restaurant industry. So tell us some of the things uh, from those experiences, especially to have a very large employee base and what that was like to lead in that environment. Um,
2: I think it's, it's actually more challenging, I think, to lead in a large environment because, you know, it's harder to, the impact is, is much more diffuse um And one of the things, and I'll credit, um, I'll credit the CEO that I worked for at the time. This was uh, at the Retailer Hot Topic. Um, they're private now, but at the time I worked for them, they were publicly traded. And uh, the CEO at that point in time was a woman by the name of Betsy McLaughlin. And I credit her for this. Um, it was, to this day, the most authentic environment I have ever worked in. And, you know, we had... 15,000 employees, they, any one of them from a part time, you know, store clerk in Poughkeepsie could pick up the phone and talk to the CEO at any time, um, you know, provided she was at her desk. She didn't have an assistant. You didn't have to make an appointment. Um, if she was there, she would answer her own phone and you could talk with her. You could complain to her. You could say anything you wanted to her. Um, and that, you know, there was a, there's a lot of reasons why, that culture was successful at the time. Um, you know, I, Hot Topic's a different company that it, than it was then because, in part, because of the recession. And we didn't do everything right, by the way. I'm not at all saying that. But I think that piece of authenticity, that piece of, you know, how do you influence people that are thousands of miles away and only work 12 hours a week, mm. um, that part we got right and um and that was i learned a lot from that experience i learned a lot from watching betsy in action
1: that's amazing and then how do you switch from there to what next
2: well you know at that point in time the recession hit and so i actually um i that was the first time i went out on my own um as a consultant um Just because we were going through so many layoffs, we were closing stores, a lot of retail got hit super hard during the recession, as you probably know, a lot of retailers went out of business, a lot of retailers still haven't recovered, actually, Um, you know, if you think of, you know, the internet also was, was taking over a lot of shopping at that point in time as well. So um, I went into consulting for a few years with no intention of staying in it, by the way, at that point in time. I was just waiting for the economy to recover. And that's when I made the decision to go into an entrepreneurial um, venture with a gentleman that I had met um, as a consultant, actually. And I believed in him. I believed in the product. I believed in the team. And, um, and I had the opportunity at that point to take on a much broader business role, which of course you're going to do in an entrepreneurial (laughs) (laughs) environment, everybody wears a lot of hats. And so I had the opportunity to, um, I was the chief administrative officer there and I was able to manage marketing and um, yes, human resources too, but also strategic planning and real estate and a whole host of other things. And and um, we grew like crazy, and um, I think we, the one thing that we really did well there is we picked the handful of things that we put a stake in the ground around. These are our values. These, this, this is who we are. This is what we will not compromise on regardless, and we were clear, and we were consistent in messaging that, and then we let go of, just about everything else and um, not everything else, but a lot of things. And we allowed the office managers in the various locations and the regional managers to really have a lot of leeway and leverage and, and in making their business grow in the way that they thought was best for, for their local environments, for their local companies. And um, so we, we had this core that was consistent um, with, S- some local variations. Um, and that that seemed to to prove to be a winning ticket
1: um, from that perspective. So it really became like the thing that everything else could orient around and also gave leverage because you weren't controlling every single aspect of the business.
2: Right. That's another thing I've seen from leaders. They try to control too much. And especially at a certain size, when you're when you're scaling um, from a smaller company to a mid-sized company, it's just impossible to control everything. So prioritizing and being able to pick and choose the things that really differentiate you from a brand perspective, I think is super important.
1: Absolutely. Now, in all of your examples, you shared you know, culture, people, um, even things like finding the right type of leaders. What advice would you give to our listeners um, in terms of how to think about hiring or how to think about the right kind of team to build? Because whether they're leading their own business and looking to hire that dream team or they're part of a larger organization and they're a rising leader and needs to build that uh, dream team around them, what have you learned and what uh, patterns or traits have you seen? Being really key to making sure that you get the right kind of team together? Um, well, I, I'm just going to
2: start with a general principle, which is don't rush hiring. It's one of the most important things you'll ever do. Um, you have to get the right people on the bus with you <laughs> to, in, in the direction you're going. It's, it's critical. And a lot of people, they're desperate by the time, you know, they have a, a job opening, the work isn't getting done. And they just rush through the interview process. And it's just not something that can be or should be rushed. Um, so that's, I suppose, number one. And then number two is to really take a um, a behavior-based and a competency-based approach. And what I mean by that is um, blending in questions um, and, and actually involving multiple people, by the way. I don't think interviewing should be just the hiring manager alone, I would, I would include other people in the process because their perspectives are very, very valuable. But, you know, the, there is a technology known as behaviorally-based interviewing, which is basically focused on the past. So rather than, like, let's say you want somebody who's a good team player, rather than hypothetically saying, so how would you go about building a team? You ask them, so tell me about how you did build a team in the past. Give me an example, and so the theory is that you know what got done in the past is going to be, um, you know, done again. You know, if we if we know how to do it and we did it before and we can tell a good story about what happened, um, you know, then I then it'll we can be pretty sure that they they have the ability to do it again. A second thing is I always like hearing about people's mistakes. Um, what didn't go well? What's a project that you're not proud about, that you would do differently if you had to do it over again, those sorts of questions, because I, I'm not looking, by the way, for, in fact, it would scare me if somebody couldn't come up with a mistake or if they gave me what I would consider a fake mistake, like, oh, I worked too hard, you know, <laughs> that's just not real, um, but I really want to know that people have the ability to learn, mm. learning, 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 that is absolutely, the most the our ability to learn learning to learn our ability to learn on the fly Um, in today's world I think that is the number one skill Um, and so I want to know that people have have learned from their mistakes because that's one of the best ways we learn you know fast failure right failure is not necessarily bad provided that we can take that opportunity like that basketball example that we talked about from the confidence code learn from it and move on And so I always make sure I build in questions about that.
1: Excellent. Well, um, you talked about reflecting on the past or looking for examples from the past um, in terms of, um, you know, their core competencies or the abilities. How is that changing, especially as we look forward to the future of work? And so many things are changing in terms of even where teams are situated. We're more virtual today, and we're collaborating over video conferences or remotely more than ever before. There's so many things that are changing in the workplace when it comes to teams and leadership, also the need for how you show up in, uh, in respect to your teammates and so forth what are some of the key themes that you're observing and what recommendations would you give to our audience about preparing for the future of work?
2: Oh, great question. Um, this is actually one that I've given quite a bit of thought to. Um, I mentioned that I teach, I'm a professor at USC now, and this comes up all the time in terms of what do we need to prepare as leaders? And, um, there's, and continuous learning. I mentioned the importance of learning. That's certainly one of them. In fact, Deloitte did a study their 2019 uh, Global Human Capital Trends Survey. Number one trend was learning. Number one. Um, and by the way, readiness. They they measured both what what do you need and uh, how ready are you to face that need. Um, if I'm looking at the stat right now and it's learning was 80, 86% picked learning as the number one and their readiness was 48%. So, and what do you
1: define as readiness?
2: Readiness being, am I ready, am I ready to tackle the learning challenges in my organization? Is our organization ready to help our employees learn? Well, Uh, think about it, think about it from a, just, just from the idea of learning, Um, a couple things. Number one is I, I remember reading um, some statistics from IBM that talked about the rate that human knowledge is doubling. And back in 1900, it was hundred years. And then in 1945, it was 25 years. And in 1982, it was every 12 to 13 months, human knowledge doubled. Well now, it's every 11 to 12 hours human mm. knowledge is doubling because of the Internet of Things and because of, um, you know, think of all the blogs and the podcasts out there and, and right. so forth. I mean, or another way of, to think about it is half of what we know today is going to be an obsolete in five years. So right. what does that tell us in terms of, you know, needing to, to build continuous learning as a cultural attribute in terms of our organization? So.
1: But that even for the individual, one. I would imagine that we don't live in an age where we can afford to just rely on schools or colleges or employers to educate us. Um, Absolutely. At that rate, you have to be personally responsible for your own growth and your own Correct. learning and development.
2: Correct. I mean, I can say this without a doubt as a freelancer now. Um, I mean, in the sense that I, you know, my consulting business and my coaching business and so forth. Um if you want to know people who are up to date on their skill set, talk to a freelancer because that is their bread and butter. They have mm-hmm. to be able to demonstrate that they have the latest certifications, the latest knowledge, and so forth. Whereas you work for a corporation, you know, not so much. I get a paycheck. And so some people are self-motivated, some people are not. But I think that's where that you were asking the question about Deloitte's survey about readiness. Um, I think that's what they're saying is, okay, well, if it's on us as an organization to make sure our employees keep learning, are we ready to do that? And not so much, at least not, the, the readiness lagged the, the need for it, put it that way. So, Which is so where the need
1: for personal responsibility comes in. Correct, Because correct. If there's a lag, then there's still a gap in your learning.
2: Right. Well, and here's a second um, thought that I had, and that is another skill Relative to the changes that are happening in society, or you know, we're now in the fourth industrial revolution, the digital revolution, is the ability to navigate paradox. Hmm. And and let me tell you what I mean by that. It's like when, when we're faced with a, na- a, a paradox as a business leader, like I'll give you one example. Like we need to build collaborative teams while increasing individual accountability, huh. or we need to be a leader in o- innovation. While having a low tolerance for failure, I, actually that was a quote from um, a previous client of mine. So mm-hmm. those two ends of the pole sound like they're completely mutually exclusive,
1: mm-hmm. and
2: most leaders will gravitate to one or the other. Like, okay, I'm going to go for the build collaborative teams, and I'm going to let the individual accountability piece, you know, waver a bit, you know. But but the better leaders realize that it's by looking at both poles, the tension between those poles. So, you know, rather than doing either or thinking, I either need to be this or that, it's yes and thinking. How can we be collaborative and team oriented and also have individual accountability all at the same time? And it's the conversation, it's that team conversation that goes into that. Um, that question, that dilemma, that paradox, if you will, that drives new thinking, it drives innovation, it drives creativity, it drives new processes. And in this environment of such rapid change, I think that's one of the key leadership skill sets is navigating um, paradox.
1: That is absolutely fascinating. And I love the way you describe it. But how does someone actually develop that skill? Is that an innate ability or is that something that can be developed?
2: I think you lean in and you do it and you, you, you know, own up to any vulnerabilities that you have um, in that area in terms of not knowing. We don't know. That's the whole point is none of us know. The, you know, the moment we think of ourselves as an expert or knowledgeable about anything, we have lost the battle because things are moving too fast to come at it from a perspective of knowing. And so, and it, you know, that's why you get a team together. That's why teams are so much more important or I don't know, important. They've always been important, but certainly getting a lot more um, pressed these days, I think is because of the realization that there's so many things that nobody in the room is an expert at. And only by working together at it, only by having that conversation, can we, you know, work together to figure it out. Um, there was this. Um, I remember when I was in oh, when I was in college. I wanted to be a child psychologist. That was my very first um, interest. And I read this article one time, and it was about parenting, actually, but it was called the good enough parent. And it goes back to this whole striving for perfection thing. And the the premise of the article was basically that a lot of parents, at least back then, were trying to be perfect parents. You know, I'm going to put my kids in the perfect, you know, school play and and teach them, you know, violin and get them French lessons and, and, you know, get them the right play group. And, you know, you get the picture. But, you know, when we strive to be perfect parents – this the theory was is that we're teaching our children that perfection is the only metric that they Ah. need to hold themselves accountable to. And that in fact, that is leads to anxiety. I mean, we have a a group of young people who, you know, that's one that is. One of the generational distinctions nowadays is um, millennials um, and Gen Z are much more highly at least diagnosed as, as having anxiety issues. And, The theory was that, you know, by telling them that, you know, perfection is the the key, that's, you know, one of the things that can lead to that sort of an issue. And so what they were saying is, no, as a parent, strive to be good enough, not perfect. And by the way, good enough is damn hard. It is a high bar to meet. Um, It means that you're there when you need to be. It means you show up, but it also means you make mistakes now and then and that you own up to those mistakes. And I think as leaders, we need to take that same approach to be the good enough manager, the good enough leader to be own up to the fact that we don't have all the answers and we need the people around us to help us. I know I'm beginning to repeat myself here. There's a theme.
1: Well, you're bringing up a really great point that um, a lot of women especially struggle with, which is... The idea of feeling guilty or feeling like you're not doing a good enough job in some aspect of your life. If you're great in your career, perhaps uh, your personal life is um, getting ignored a little bit. Maybe you're not as present for your children, or maybe you're not taking care of your health, or if you're balancing that, maybe there's some challenges at work. So the whole idea of not just work life balance, but just feeling guilty of dropping the ball somewhere. What guidance would you give in that in terms of um, the good enough philosophy?
2: Um, I, first of all, uh, am exactly the person you described, Nikki. (laughs) (laughs) When my son was young, I was in a constant state of guilt. If I was working, I wasn't spending enough time with him. If I was with him, I wasn't spending enough time working. And it was... Oh, my gosh, such an agony. And if, you know, if I were to talk to my, you know, young, self. my young parent self back then, if she were sitting across the chair from me right now, I would be, you know, having this whole conversation about chill out, <laughs> you know, just know that you will feel guilty lean into it um go with it we we so so often want to avoid what we're afraid of these negative emotions whether it's guilt or fear or whatnot and you know those feelings we need to be make friends with them we need to lean into it we need to we realize that fear is its power its motivation it's a call to action so you know Paying attention to it is fine, but pay attention to it as a friend, not as an enemy. And um, so there you go. That's my one piece of advice.
1: That's beautiful. Well, it's uh, very much the Buddhist philosophy, right? Of uh, leaning into the very thing that uh, you're afraid of. And, oh, is it? I'm not yeah. a Buddhist, so that's beautiful to know. Do a dance with it. You know, dance Yes,
2: exactly. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. It's yeah. It's I've gotten, you know, I'm way better at it now than I was back then. But if I, if I had to do it over again, that would be what I would strive for anyway. It's not easy.
1: So is there a habit or a hack that uh, has either helped you or something you've learned from someone else who was very effective at focusing on the right thing at the right
0: time?
2: Um, at two things I think that worked for me Um to keep me focused, because um, you asked that question, I have a whiteboard in my office, but it's not affixed to the wall. It's um, mobile and it flips. And on one side, at any given time, is sort of my mind map for the future, and it changes all the time. And so, and I use mind mapping as a tool um, to to do that because it sort of I tend to be fairly fairly linear, and and logical, sort of analytical in the way I think. So mind mapping for me helps me get my, my head in a different space. And so it's, it's every time I have a new idea for the future, I'll flip the board over and, and, you know, add a branch just to capture the idea. And every once in a while I go to it and look at it um, for ideas. The other thing that occurred to me is in my, in my sort of newfound era of really trying to lean into feeling okay and making friends with fear and making friends with guilt and all of that is I realize that I don't need to have the answers. And that is hard for me because <laughs> I was, I, I was successful in my career because I had the answers I could solve the problems. Um, mm-hmm. um, so I really strive now to lead with questions, and, um, and and part of that's you know sort of the the coach training that I've been through, it's helped me a lot for sure. But practicing it, actually practicing it, and so I try to um, not provide an answer or not provide a statement, and instead provide a question um, to get the dialogue started, and that helps.
1: That's fantastic. Nothing more powerful than a great question. Yeah,
2: mm-hmm. well, that's it's Certainly helped
1: for sure. So who is um, someone that you would love to learn from? Is there a powerful and influential person that is on your dream mentor list or someone you would love to have dinner with and pick their brain?
2: Oh, there's probably 20. But <laughs> if I could pick one person and only one person, um, honestly, it would be Colin Powell.
1: Mm, tell us why.
2: Well, and it's a personal thing. Um, it's a personal experience I had. I I want I don't want to say with him because he never knew I was there, <laughs> but it was something I witnessed. Um, I was in Hawaii giving a speech um, to a group of doctors, actually. I was talking about my orthodontic world. Uh, this was back then. And I was standing in a hallway because the entire lobby of the hotel I was in, and I don't remember which one, but it was mobbed because there was this big um, – um, Pearl Harbor thing, it was an anniversary of Pearl Harbor, and as you may or may not know, um, a lot of veterans come in for that, and they're all wearing their jackets and their hats, and they've got patches, and they're greeting old friends, and it was just wall-to-wall joy um, in this, in this, uh, you know, lobby of people that were just so happy to see each other and so happy to celebrate one another, and I was just standing in the hallway watching it. Well, at the other end of the hallway, which nobody else could see but me, I was the only one, down the hallway walks Colin Powell and his entourage. He had probably 20 people around him. And I was like, oh, my God, it's Colin Powell. And I'm sure he was there for the, for the uh, celebration. And um, he was probably making a speech to them or, or something. Who knows? But anyway, he, the lobby the, the, hadn't seen him yet. I was the only one that saw him. Well, next to him was his wife and his entourage. At one point before he hit the before he hit the, the lobby, before anybody could see him, you know, I assume he asked, you know, everybody to leave because um, they all scattered and it was just him and his wife. And I was close enough that I could actually see what was happening and, and hear a little bit of what was happening. And, you know, he knew that the throngs were waiting for him. He knew he would be inundated as soon as he turn the corner, but he took that moment, and turned to her, and took her hands, and looked in her eyes, and was completely, fully present for her at that moment, and he leaned over, and he whispered something in her ear, I'm not sure what, but she grinned ear to ear, and then he, he came back, See, and this is, I don't even know, 20 years, and I still remember this, 30 years, and I, and he looked at her in the eye, and he just said, you are the only reason this matters to me, the only thing that keeps me going and I just thought oh my this is this is it this is like he has this this mix of power and success and competence and humanness I saw the Mm. human in him in that moment in time and it has stayed with me for 30 I mean I look at him as just this I'm sure he's done some things wrong we all have I'm not saying but my gosh that stays with me
1: isn't that the most precious thing that even in the midst of power and success and especially in the digital world that our humanity is what really makes us stand out?
2: Yep, that's exactly right. That's what I remember about is him is humanity.
1: How would you guide someone that is early in their career and is perhaps intimidated by people like Colin Powell, you know, people in power, <laughs> but they have this hunger to want to learn or want to get a mentor or a sponsor, uh, perhaps just build a relationship, but they just don't know how to approach them. What would you tell them?
2: Um, well, let's assume, like if I were, were spending the time talking to them as a... Uh, as a coach, let's say, because I wouldn't tell them what to do, because what, you know, one person's going to do is not going to work for another person. So it's all a matter of them finding their way, how could they approach it. Mm. So I would probably approach it from the standpoint of talking about a, what's their goal here? What do Mm. they want to accomplish? Um, You know, I mean, do they just want to meet the person? Do they want to have coffee with them? Do they have a specific question? Do they want, you know, what is it that they're trying to get out of this relationship? Um, Number one, and then number two, what are your options, you know, and then, you know, once exploring those options, which of those options, you know, feels the most authentic to them? Um, the most genuine in terms of, you know, how to approach this person. Sometimes you can do it through another party um, that can work, you know, be brilliant in terms of being able to have, you know, a mutual acquaintance actually connect the two of you um, and may, and cause that can take a lot of the ice, you know, melt a lot of that ice that you might be feeling. Other people are, are more comfortable doing it directly. Some people would rather do it via email um, I remember it's when, when I was first starting out, I was going to a lot of seminars. I was lucky to have uh, uh, an employer that sent me to – they're basically skill seminars, um, like workers' compensation was one I remember I went to. And if, if the leader, whoever was speaking, had a career, when I read the bio, if they had a career that looked really interesting to me or one that I might want to learn from or emulate, I would always ask them for coffee or lunch or something. Um, a drink, whatever, if, you know, at their convenience, just so I could pick their brain. And it worked brilliantly. I mean, I can't tell you how many wonderful connections I made. I actually got two job offers out of it, not in the moment, but like a year later, two years later, somebody uh, who I had done that with called me and anyway. So, but I was okay. That was something that it was hard. I had to gulp and, you know, put on my big boy pants, as they say, to to actually make the invitation. But once you do it once or twice, they're thrilled. Oh my gosh, you know, it's like, oh, you really, you know, you're interested in me, you want to learn about me. Oh my gosh, let me Yes, I'd love to sit down and tell you about me. Everybody loves talking about themselves. So once I did it once or twice, and I realized people would be open to it, it became much more easy, but the first time's hard, for sure.
1: Yeah, it's really just a fear of rejection and feeling like you might be a burden on that um, mentor or that influential person you want to get to know. But in my experience, most of time, um, you know, great leaders tend to be very generous uh, and oftentimes very keen on paying it forward and wanting to help. So being authentic, being uh, courageous and reaching out and being specific about exactly what you wish to learn from them, but also being willing to figure out what you can do for them as well. You know, there's always something you can um, help them with even if that's as simple as uh, expressing your gratitude.
2: Nikki, and I think you just hit the nail on the head. It's like thinking about what you can do for them um, is also one of the most powerful things you can do. Rather than, rather than approaching it from what, here's what I need from you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if there's something you can think of that you can give to them, something you can help them with, I think is, it can be powerful.
1: And we often underestimate what we could do for someone else because if you see someone in a higher position of power, you assume that you have nothing to give to them or nothing to do for them. But it might be as simple as, hey, you have uh, feedback on their product and you have suggestions on how the product could be better. It could be something as simple as that um, or it could be um, you know, giving them some insights that they might not be privy to. So I think there's just lots of ways to create value, but when you think about how you could be helpful to someone else, it just automatically creates an environment that uh, is a great foundation for a relationship.
2: Yeah, when I, uh, one of the exercises I've had my students do, and I teach several different classes um, at USC, different topics, I should say, but one of them is a leadership class, and when we get to the part of talking about networking, I ask them to actually put um, their network together. And I, I say, okay, here's five categories, support and encouragement, shares your hobbies and interests, laughter and fun, professional helper mentoring, and truth-telling. And put names of everybody that you can think of, you know, for the next five minutes in each of these categories, and then make a pie chart that, you know, on a percentage basis shows where your biggest network is and where you're lacking. and all every single time it never fails. The two out of those five categories, the two that are the smallest piece of the pie, so to speak is professional help and mentoring. And some people have almost no one in that category, no one that they can call with a professional question or, or to get advice. And then of course the other, the other one of as you probably would guess is truth telling Mm. that we, we may, if we're lucky, have one person, who will tell us the tough truths and will look us in the eye and tell us the things that are painful to hear but so essential to hear but um, but we're lucky if we have one or two and and you know I would just ask whether we we need more than that or at least you know if we don't have anybody, you know what does that say and and where do we get someone who will tell us what we need to hear
1: That's a fantastic framework for everyone to use, and I don't think there's an you know age or experience limit when that framework doesn't apply anymore, because no matter how uh, successful you are in your career or your life, there's still always a need to learn from someone and always a need for people around you that will tell you the truth. Right. I agree. So as you consider the future of work and all of the disruption that's happening, what is the one word, one piece of advice that you would give to our listeners? to really focus on that would set them up for success.
2: Okay. I'm not going to say a word. I'm going to say a phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, put your own mo- oxygen mask on first.
0: Mm. Um,
2: so we're, we you know, we talked about leadership and leading others and leading teams and so forth, but um, all leadership development starts with self-development. Um, you know, to quote Gandhi, we have to be the change we want to see in the world because it's a ripple effect that lead by example. So we have to, you know, look ourselves in the mirror, Um, use the phrase uh, when we were talking today about, you know, who do you want to be? How do you want to show up? Um, And, you know, answering that question is always the place to start um, before worrying about careers and other people and other teams and so forth. So
1: That's That's powerful. It's a world where everybody needs to be a change agent. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. Well, Robin, thank you so much for all the incredible insights and actionable tips and all your wisdom. Uh, This is going to be fantastic. I think you shared some phenomenal frameworks that people can reference. Uh, So, very grateful to you for that and for taking the time to be on the show. What is the best way for our listeners to connect with you?
2: Um, I love talking to people. So if you would like to reach out, um, obviously, uh, my website is JanusCoach.com, J-A-N-U-S, after the Roman God, JanusCoach.com. You can, uh, and my my email address is Robin at
1: JanusCoach.com
2: or LinkedIn, send me a note through LinkedIn. Um, Any of those would be fine.
1: So, there you have it, folks. Reach out to Robin, connect with her on LinkedIn, or check out her website at januscoach.com and get more of this goodness. So, thank you again, Robin. And we're uh, thrilled to share this episode with everyone.
2: Thank you, Nikki. It's been a
1: pleasure. I'm so uh, proud and pleased.
0: Share your comments and topic suggestions on imbeyondbearers.com and we'll be sure to address them in future episodes. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and rate the podcast or just tell a friend about it. See you next episode.